You're listening to the Life Tree Church Sermon of the Week. We pray that as you hear this word, you would be encouraged and inspired as you pursue Jesus in your everyday life. Matthew 3, verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now, it's per- proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Then Jesus consen- consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and a, light- a lightning on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son, who I- whom, I'm, uh, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the Son of God, he said, Throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to the very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and the angels came and attended him. Thank you, Talia. I don't know about you guys, but I love the public reading of Scripture. And I love when our youth do it. So really appreciate that, Talia. I know it's crazy like to come stand in front of everybody and do that. We'll, we'll touch back on that scripture in a minute. But have any of you ever purchased something, and when you got it, it didn't live up to the expectations of what you thought you were getting? I, I had an instance that I was doing a, a copper roof, and I had to learn how to do soldering in order to like complete this roof project and so I watched these YouTube videos about using a soldering iron and how to solder copper and and I bought this soldering iron and it gets delivered to my house with all the little extra tools that come with it and I go ahead and I start soldering and it looked nothing like what I watched in the videos (laughs) I was like I was like what is how do you do this it was a total like total mess and I was concerned like how 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 am I gonna like finish this roof if I can't figure out how to do this and so I had to like I had to go back 
to the instructional videos. Not once, not twice, not three times. I had to repeatedly revisit these videos and watch every little detail of what these guys were doing and listen to the instructions and start to understand all the many facets and dynamics at play and that work in order to make this tool that I purchased do what it was supposed to do. Now, you realize there was nothing wrong with the tool. There was nothing defective with the soldering iron that was sent to me or the supplies or anything. Everything that had been shipped to me was as it should be. But I had no clue how to use it. Thanks, Michael. And we, we've been in these like last couple months talking about these grand ideas about our identity and who God says that we are. And it's, and it's like when you actually look at what Scripture has to say about who you are and your purpose and all this sort of stuff, it's big, it's lofty, it's powerful. Would you agree? Like we're telling you, you're made in God's image. I don't know what's bigger than that in identity. We're told that if you want to step into your true identity, you just got to look at God more. Because you're called to be like him and look like him. That is profound and significant, correct? So what I want to do today is I want to talk to you about, well, how do you remain... I think I have a slide for these questions. These are the questions I want us to really consider today. How do we remain in our true identity when it's under attack? And how do we return to our true identity when we have gone astray? Because the reality is, is this identity message that we have been talking about and preaching about for for weeks, for a couple months, it's true. It's like the soldering iron. It works. It's not, it's not defective. And yet there's times maybe you look at what you're feeling and what you're experiencing or what is manifesting from your life and you are like, this does not line up. What I see coming out of my life does not remind me of the image of God. Can we agree? Good. (laughs) Good. And you know, our culture wrestles with this question in a a slightly different way, maybe. A really common question would be, how do we discover and live as our authentic self? Sound familiar? Common response to the question... Look and feel deep within. You just got to look a little deeper into you. You just got to feel a little deeper into you. Now, I don't know about you, but the problem I have found with that is when I look and feel deep within, it ain't all good. I find a lot of confusing stuff in here. 
I find a lot of messy stuff in here. Find confusing feelings present. But the good news is that there is a voice from beyond yourself, from outside yourself, from above yourself that's more reliable than anything you can simply find within yourself. I'm going to say it again. There's a voice beyond yourself, outside yourself, and above yourself that is more reliable than anything you can find within yourself. And what Talia just read to us gives us some indication of what that voice is speaking and saying. You are my son, my child, whom I love and in whom I'm well pleased. That is, that is the ultimate description that God would speak over you. And yet, we know there's some other stuff he might say to us too. That's not so nice. But I want us to look today at this, this passage that Talia read as a framework for, for these ideas. And there is so much inside what she read to us that we could do weeks of teaching on just that passage and start to dive into the details of it. But we're just going to gloss over and even overlook some of those details. I'll just quickly say maybe some of those details, like Jesus saying, uh, this is you know, essentially necessary that all righteousness might be fulfilled. What does that mean? Or the, or the fact that it was 40 days of fasting in the wilderness. Or the specific temptations and why those are significant. We're not going to go into any of that. I'm just highlighting them so maybe you want to go and study and dig. But what is worth highlighting, just briefly, is that we see in this story, Jesus gets baptized, this amazing thing happens where the heavens are open and this voice from heaven speaks over him, what it speaks to him. And then it says he's led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. That's, a, that's such a like, dramatic sentence. Led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Oh, thanks, thanks, Lord. You know, uh, to be tempted by the devil. Oh, even better. You know, like. But the story goes on. Of we see Jesus overcoming what the devil throws at him. And in Luke's gospel, it says that after this event, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And so there's something that happens in this story and season we just read about of temptation and trying in wilderness that is actually formational, that's actually maybe, maybe, maybe not formational for Jesus, but like it's through this season 
that his true identity and the power of it emerges and starts to impact the world around him. It's after this season and this event that he starts to heal the sick and raise the dead and preach the gospel and multiply food and walk on water and all of the powerful miracles that we see from Jesus' life and all the powerful words that he speaks that have been changing human history for the last 2,000 years comes following this season. And so, you see, what I want us to catch is that these difficult wilderness, tempting, testing seasons, they can go either way. They can be destructive or they can be formational. And, praise be to God, they could even be both in that particular order. You can find yourself down the destructive path, and he can even use that to form you. Bring you into who he's called you to be. And so, I want to try and make this practical today, but we are going to take a bit of time to look at it conceptually still. But to to make it practical, I want to look at what was spoken over Jesus, how the devil tried to undermine that, how Jesus overcame the devil's schemes, and then share some practical application and personal disciplines that help live this out. So first, what was spoken over Jesus? This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. This voice from heaven publicly acknowledges and affirms Jesus' identity. And notice what wasn't said. What wasn't said was all that he would do and accomplish. What was said is my son. I love him. I'm pleased with him. My hope today is that you can hear the Lord speak those words over you. That every time I reference it, every time I read it, that you would hear over you, you're my child. I love you. I'm pleased with you. I delight in you. I rejoice over you. Knowing what God has to say about you is more than enough to stand the storm, in the storms of life. So this is the word that's spoken over Jesus, and then what does the devil come at him with? The first words out of the devil's mouth when he comes to tempt Jesus, saying, turn these stones into bread, is if you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. And then he takes him up on the temple, and he says, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, and even quote scripture to him, right? Do something great to prove that what was spoken over you is true. Remember last week and the week before Stacy talking about how we end up getting identity in our resume? Whether our sins or our success. We identify with what we've done more than who he says we are. And eventually the devil can't get at him this way. And after he fails with, if you are the son of God, temptations, he just takes it right into, well, if you worship me, I'll, just, I'll give you this. But what he tempts Jesus with is the very thing that Jesus 
was called and ordained to have. The kingdoms of this world. The, the Satan says to him, I will give you all the kingdoms of this world if you'll just bow down and worship me. What's essentially happening is Satan saying, will you worship your calling? Will you worship your destiny over God? God he, will, he will take very good things from God and try to turn them into God's that we worship. So there's even for me sometimes a danger in all this identity preaching that we're doing that we can get so fixated on who I am and who I'm called to be and all this sort of stuff and miss God. We easily turn good gifts into God's. Financial stability safety and security can i get an amen <laughs> sexual satisfaction or romance or destiny and purpose and calling the list can go on and on of these good things that we turn into gods so how does jesus overcome Every single time he responds to the devil, he starts with, it is written. It is written. It is written. Jesus overcame the devil by being saturated in the scriptures. God's words guided his thoughts and his worldview and his perspective of himself more than any other voice. It wasn't enough for Jesus just to have his favorite parts of Scripture. He had to be saturated in the whole thing because when the devil came at him, the second temptation, he quotes Scripture to him. The devil loves to distort truth and misapply it to our lives. And if Jesus wasn't well-versed in the whole of Scripture, he wouldn't have had the perspective and the paradigm necessary to go, mm -mm -mm, I'm not going to take that, Satan. <laughs> it was Jesus' familiar, familiarity with the full scope of Scripture that allowed him to wield it well as a weapon against the enemy of his soul. You guys with me? So we're going to try to make this practical, okay? I want to share with you some practical application of what can that look like in your life. I'll share with you some personal disciplines. But before I do that, I'm going to tell you why I sometimes shy away from doing this. I feel this caution and an awareness of what the real goal of preaching is. The caution for me is that I don't ever want to get up here and preach to you, Caleb. 
I want to preach to you Christ. I want to preach to you the word of God, not my ideas. I don't want you to just know and follow techniques and disciplines. I want you to know and follow Jesus. That said, disciplines have served me well. A good teacher that really impacted my life would often say the Christian life was never meant to be reduced to disciplines. It's supposed to be lived from passion, but disciplines act like the backstop at a baseball diamond that when you miss the catch from the pitcher, the ball can't go too far. And what I found is that having these disciplines, particularly the first one I'm going to talk to you about, has really helped me not let the ball go too far. So the things I want to talk to you about today are, this is so funny, okay? Like I asked the team this week, like, you know, where's, where are you guys feeling things are missing in what we've been talking about preaching? And uh, someone threw out, you know, just make it practical. So here we are. And I wrote on, I wrote on my whiteboard, do you want to know your identity, question mark? Read the Bible. All right, have a good day. Like, I don't know, guys. I, I just, sometimes I feel like I don't know what else to tell you. Yes, we'll get there, Drew. Don't worry. We'll get there. We'll get there. Have friends that read the Bible for those of you watching from home who can't hear from the room. Yes, great advice. So practical application number one, read the Bible daily, annually. I'll talk to you about that. Number two, pray and process emotions and longings. Number three, confess sins as sin to God and people. So let's dive in. I have found, like, uh, I made a choice, I'll tell you this, this now hopefully not preaching too much of Caleb to you, but here we go. Six, seven years ago, I was being hit with the sense of calling on my life and my journey with the Lord and and realized the immense importance for me to be immersed in the whole of Scripture. And I picked up the practice of reading through the entire Bible every year. And that's just baseline discipline. I do extracurricular, extra recreational readings on top of that. But... Read through the whole Bible every year. Pick up a five-day-a-week Bible reading plan that takes me through the chronological sequence of Scripture. Five days a week works great because if I miss a day, I can catch up really easy. It takes me about 20 minutes of reading in the morning to keep up on this reading plan. And with a 20-minute-in-the-morning commitment, five days a week throughout the year, go through the whole of Scripture. And there's something for me really powerful about doing it daily. Like I said, doesn't let the ball go too far. 
But there's also something really important about doing it for me, I find really important. You don't have to do this, okay? When I'm talking to you about this stuff, I want you to take the principle. I want you to take the essence of it and let the Lord apply it to your life in your own way. But for me, it's the first thing I do in the day. After I go to the bathroom (laughs) and pour my coffee. You got to know this stuff, okay? And so, because, because what, it, what, it, what, it, what that means was I made this discipline, I will not pick up this. That will not be the first thing I do in the day. That thing stays plugged in in the kitchen, unused. And, and well, it doesn't always stay plugged in the kitchen. I use it for a clock if I'm reading somewhere where I can't see the clock, but... It's, I gotta be so, I'm being honest. That's the truth of it. Detail, I'm a detail guy. My friends are laughing at me. The first, within the first five minutes, within the first five waking minutes of the day, the Bible's opened up. I would consider this in the, within the top three best decisions I've ever made in my life. The first 10 minutes of your day is more valuable than the second 10 minutes of your day. The first 20 minutes of your day is more valuable than the second 20 minutes of your day. That's what I think, anyway. I don't have a Bible verse to totally confirm it, but hey. Sets the tone for my day. It shapes my worldview. It shapes my view of God. And it allows me to proceed through the rest of the day. And who can say, like, with me, life's hard sometimes. The world's crazy. You let, you let you know, social media or whatever other media be the thing that shapes your worldview. And your view of God as the first thing in the day, I'll pray for you. I'm sorry if that's what's shaping your worldview. And by committing to reading the whole of the scripture on a regular basis, I, I get to, we get to learn how to wield it right. We're protected from creating little pet doctrines out of our favorite little corner of scripture. We have to look at the whole. It makes it more difficult for the devil to twist it and distort it and misapply it to your life. And here's one of the really important parts of it. It allows the Lord to confront me because I have to read the hard parts. I have to read the the, the parts that make me uncomfortable If the God that you worship doesn't disagree with you sometimes, it's probably an idol. It's probably an image of God that we've created on our own that we feel comfortable with. But a relationship with the living God is a relationship that involves confrontation. 
and discomfort. And so having a Bible reading plan helps me to not flounder. To not just camp out. And it's, there's a place for camping out. There's times where I read through the same section of Scripture for days and weeks and months. And having a plan helps you not to flounder. And not every meal of Scripture that I wake up to and eat is memorable. I do not, do not get the wrong idea that every morning Caleb pours his coffee and sits down and whoa, the heavens open and the halo comes down and all this like, you know, new. Some of the thoughts that run through my head when I am reading scripture, I'm like, what the heck is going on? I'm trying to focus on Jesus here right now, you know, and, and, and there's this wrestle and there's times I read what's on the pages and I'm like, I don't, I don't know. All right, on with the day. But just because a meal's not memorable doesn't mean it wasn't nutritious. Doesn't mean it wasn't valuable. Doesn't mean it wasn't important. So with that said, saturated scripture, what I'm really trying to invite you to is immerse yourself in Jesus. Jesus said the whole of the scriptures pointed to him. He's the word made flesh. He's the embodiment of it. If you tell me I really love Jesus but not so sure about the Bible, I'll say you're deceived. You know, I say things in really gentle ways sometimes, right? Jesus passionately affirmed the reliability of scripture. It's what he fought his battle with, like we read about this morning. So from that foundation of saturated in Scripture, pray and process your emotions, your longings, your disappointments, your confusion, all of it. I've learned the value and I'm very much learning the value right now, as my wife could tell you, of say what I'm thinking. Say what I'm feeling. Say what I'm wanting. Because when I actually speak it out in the presence of God, He speaks into it. I bring it into his presence. And when you're immersed in the scriptures, you have this truth filter that helps you go, oh my gosh, that's a lie. (laughs) But until you start to say it out and get really raw or loud or quiet and broken, It stays in here, and you don't really fully know it or understand it. To me, prayer is so much about processing my pain, processing my desires, my disappointments, all this sort of stuff. 
And sometimes, like, if you could hear the things that come out of my mouth when I'm driving alone in my truck, you'd be like, you're a pastor? What? And, and, and I'm like, my father's not afraid of it. He's the, one who need, he's, he's the one I need to tell it to. Because he's the one who's going to speak truth into it better than anybody else. And sometimes I find it's not just maybe that thing of getting it out verbally. Sometimes for me, this might help you, I have to write. Because sometimes everything that goes on up in here is way too much of a swirl for me to get it out articulately from my mouth. And to write, I go, okay, yeah, that's the thought I'm thinking, and then I can go, okay, and that's leading to this. And it's a very, surprise, surprise, analytical process. But by writing it down, it helps me sort out the swirl that's going on in here and in here. And it helps me, again, bring it before the Lord so he can dismantle it. And put it back together truthfully. Because we, lo- we love, sometimes, sometimes I think we get addicted to our negative emotion, to our disappointment. And we actually kind of just like there's something and there's some sort of self justification and whatever that goes on in our anger and in all of our stuff. The Lord has more for us. I, I want to tell you, I had this experience just a couple weeks ago where um, I felt like just having to deal with something in my heart. And it was this. I, I, I can be a little serious, okay, and a little bit intense. And the Lord was just starting to show me the joy that he has for me. This was in relationship to praying in the hospitality room with Rory Campbell a couple weeks ago, and we were praying into this because there's this thing in me that looks at what's going on in the world, and I'm like, I'll die for the truth. I'll go to jail for the truth, and I'm in my, like, you know, intense thing, and then I just hit with, like, if, if, if it came to that, I hope I'd be smiling. I hope I'd be laughing. I hope I would just be like totally immersed in the joy of the Lord and that I'm sitting with him who sits in the heavens and laughs at it all. And I felt like what started happening in me, anybody familiar with the Enneagram? Enneagram? I'm going to say it. I'm not saying this to like throw shade on the Enneagram. It has been the most helpful personality tool thing that I've ever encountered, Okay. And, and my Enneagram number is an Enneagram 5, super heady, analytical, all that sort of stuff. And, um, and so I'm sitting there in this moment, and I just felt like this thing kind of going on in me where I'm like, well, well I'm an Enneagram 5. So, you know, uh, I just kind of, I'm pretty serious, and I think like this. And, and I just felt like the Lord said, listen, that thing's a tool doesn't need to be a trap. It's a great tool. It's been a super helpful tool. 
It's actually helped me understand my sinfulness better. It's helped me understand how my strengths work better. But it's a tool. Don't let it be a trap. And I felt like Jesus said to me, you're not a disciple of the anagram. I called you to be a disciple of me. And it's like this thing where it's like I can just hear myself being, but Lord and King of the Universe, Jesus, I'm an Enneagram 5. Like, I, 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 I don't know. Like, sorry, find another guy, you know, to sanctify in that way. You know, it's like I, I just, it's, it's a tool. Don't let it be a trap. There are things and behaviors and character and fruit in my life that God wants to develop that if I go down that track too far, I limit the image of Jesus that can be emerging from my life. And I'm sure... My well-versed Enneagram friends tell me, well, you're just misapplying it. You totally missed the point and all that sort of stuff. But anyways, that's what happened with me and Jesus, okay? <laughs> Lastly, confess your sin as, quote, unquote, sin. To God and to people. See, because again, coming back to step one, immersion in the Word gives us a framework for this, gives us language for it. Do you realize we've been talking about identity all these weeks? And do you want to know one of the most frequently used metaphors in Scripture to tell us our identity? Sheep. Lord, who am I? Bah. <laughs> it's just like, you're a sheep, bro. And not the, not the quiet, like clean, fluffy, beautiful Hallmark sheep, the dirty, infested, stupid sheep that exist in the real world. That's who you are, my son. I love you very much. <laughs> There's no metaphor that gets nearly as much airtime in Scripture as calling us sheep. Sheep need a shepherd. Sheep easily go with the flow. Sheep easily go astray. And they literally, they get dirt and parasites and all sorts of stuff stuck in their wool. And they need a shepherd to clean them up. First Timothy 1 verse 15. This is the kind of gems you'll get when you read your Bible regularly, okay? Do we have it on the screen? Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. New King James 
Paul essentially refers to himself as chief among sinners. He's like, I'm the top sinner. And, and this isn't about Paul saying, this is, a, this is a faithful and worthy of acceptance saying that Paul of Tarsus is a sinner who Jesus came to die for. He's saying, this is a, this is a trustworthy and worthy of full acceptance saying for you to embrace in your life. Let's read it again. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. You see, we love talking about our sin in softer terms. Like, I'm just not living out of my true identity. We've been talking about identity the last few weeks, right? And we can leave it just there in that realm. Well, I'm just not living out of my true identity. And, 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 and Scripture has a way of describing that in Romans 3.23, saying, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Fallen short of the glory that God destined to be displayed through your life. Falling short of the glory that he has invited you to live in. We fall short of it, and that's called sin. But we love to hide and spin stories and shift blame. That's the whole Genesis 3 story that we looked at weeks ago. Right? They sin. What do they do? They hide. They spin a story. And they shift blame. Was it me? Was the woman? Was it me? Was the devil? You know, and, and it's like, it's, it's just, we, we just work on down the line. Someone else's fault, not mine. Things are going tough in marriage. We love to say things like, my marriage is struggling. Not, I'm struggling. My marriage failed. Not, I failed. It's her fault, Jesus. And not go deep and let the scripture read you and call you out. So in case it's not clear, I actually think it's really good news that the Bible calls it for what it is, calls it sin. It's really helpful. It helps me, it helps us deal with the gravity of it, the seriousness of it, and not play games. But the best part about it is that for all of us, chief among sinners, Christ Jesus came and died to save sinners. I would say to you, a faithful and trustworthy saying is this, Jesus loves sinners. 
Now, that's an offensive statement when you really look at it in, in, in our current cultural moment. Even the notion that such a thing as sin exists or that you, sinner, no, not me. But the Bible doesn't hold these things uh, like separate. They're not at odds with each other. Jesus loves sinners. I'm going to tell you, you guys can get a real window into me here right now. There's lots of times that I am coming up here to speak to, to you. And the voice of the devil is saying, you have no business or authority to be preaching to these people. You know what this framework of sin has allowed me to learn to say in response to the devil? You're right. I'm a sinner. And I have no business or authority or righteousness of my own to stand upon. I stand to address these people in the righteousness and the authority of Jesus Christ. And although it's not popular to acknowledge sin as sin, it's powerful. It's the road to freedom. And immersion in the word helps us know that it's okay to acknowledge that we've sinned before God because he gives grace to the humble. We can actually acknowledge it before him and know that we're loved. He didn't, he didn't, he didn't stop loving you while you were sinning. Paul says, Christ loved us so much that while we were still sinners, he died for us. So if we can get this in our hearts, Jesus loves sinners. That's the title for the message today. We actually don't have to stop short at confession to just God alone. Because that can be the temptation. There's power in confession to people, to other humans. James 5.16, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Not confess your sins to each other and judge each other. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other. Why? So that you might be healed. There's a supernatural grace, a healing that comes in the confession to each other. And when I know I'm forgiven by God, like when that really is deep in the core of me, I can tell anybody. Like if, I, if I'm like, I know Jesus forgives me, but no way, I'm not telling anybody else. I don't know if you really 
if it's really gone that deep, that the God of the universe has forgiven you. I've experienced the awareness that when I am hiding my sin from people, I'm actually hiding from God. Because when I found myself in the filth and in the mess, and I want to then draw near to God and say, sing songs like, I surrender, you know, to to you, Lord Jesus, he's saying, talk to them. Talk to your wife. Talk to your friends. Talk to the people I've put in your life. Acknowledge your sin as sin. Be open about it. Normalize confession of sin. Living in the power of the truth requires the pain of telling the truth. Living in the power of the truth requires the pain of telling the truth. We can go just a little deeper. There has been moments in my life as an adult man, as a follower of Jesus, as a married man where lust has gotten a hold in my heart and in my life. Where I have looked at things too long, allowed myself to go down that rabbit hole, And when that happened, there's been immense shame, profound fear of what would be the impact of sharing this with my wife, my friends. And all I felt this awareness of is that as I, as, as, as I feel Jesus drawing me to him from that place, it's like, it's really clear. Son, you need to tell them. And it's almost like he's standing there with the sword of his word pointed out, and the only way I get to come to him is walk and let it go through me and feel the pain of it. But it cleanses and it purifies you can acknowledge sin and be loved by God at the same time. Your identity is not the sin. You are a child of God. You are not your thoughts. You are not your feelings. You are not your sins and you're not your successes. You are a child of God. You are who he says you are. You're not who you say you are. You're who he says you are. 
The only time what you have to say about who you are has the power to set you free and lift you higher is when you say who he says you are. So when we read these words of the Father from heaven saying, this is my son, whom I love, and in whom, with whom I am well pleased. To all the ladies in the house, know that, that, that you can apply that to yourself as well. The, the thing that we lose sight of in our culture was that in this intensely patriarchal culture that, that, that this was written in, it was a profound, earth-shattering idea to tell a woman, you're a son of God. And you know us men, we're bride of Christ and all that great stuff too. So it <laughs> goes both ways. So I want to read these words over you one last time. Then I'm going to hand it over to Kelly. Kelly, you can come up here. She's going to close us out. But I want you to, um, I want you to hear the words of the Father that he spoke to Jesus for you. I want you to believe it. I want you to realize that it is this truth that allows you to remain in your true identity when it's under attack. And it is also this truth that allows you to return to your true identity when you have gone astray. So open your heart, whatever that looks like for you. If it means close your eyes, you can do that. Do whatever you have to do. Posture yourself. I'm going to read it. I'm going to give it to Kelly. You are my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Thank you for listening to the Lifetree Church Sermon of the Week. At Lifetree, we are a family all about declaring and displaying Jesus to transform lives and benefit our city. If you'd like to find out more about Lifetree, you can find us online at Lifetree.com dot ca